I consider to be a proof of concept of an electric vehicle and a battery technology that it sort of meets the requirements of, you know, range and performance, rechargeability and cost. But very quickly, the industry is turning toward other issues that are very important, like ethics and safety in the manufacturing process. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. In case you missed the memo, leaders all over the world are putting pressure on the car manufacturing industry to reduce their carbon footprint by subsidizing the shift to electric mobility and imposing regulation on gas-powered cars. And as the price of gas rises, the need for battery-powered vehicles rises with it. But how those batteries are made also has an environmental cost, which is precisely the problem Nanoramic Laboratories is solving. Nanoramic Laboratory was co-founded in 2009 by today's podcast guest, John Cooley, who is now Chief of Products. John and his team developed the technology that is transforming the future of Li-Ion energy storage by creating electrodes without traditional polymer binders. In layman's terms, John and his teams are replacing the costly and wasteful parts of Li-Ion batteries with nanotech carbon, a more efficient material that not only costs less, but is also easier to produce and more powerful. Welcome back to Innovation Heroes. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. Today, I'm deep diving into unfamiliar tech territory to talk battery manufacturing, energy storage, and paving the way towards a more sustainable future with Nanoramic Laboratories co-founder, John Cooley. Welcome to Innovation Heroes, John. It's great to have you here. John, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. John, you co-founded Nanoramic Laboratories back in 2009. Can you tell us about how and why it all started and what was your vision back then? Uh, yeah, sure. So in 2009, I was in grad school at MIT doing a PhD in the electrical engineering department. And I had been at MIT for several years at that point, and I got sort of restless and wanted to step out of my comfort zone. This was at a time when um, there was a lot of talk about clean energy applications. Um, you know, we were coming out of the recession and there was government funding available for those kinds of things. And I also sort of, you know, in order to step out of my comfort zone, I sort of decided I would take a business class, which was very different from what I had been doing, focusing on engineering. And the business class I took was called an Energy Ventures. It was an MIT Sloan School of Management. And I got paired up with a lab mate of mine. It was sort of just a coincidence, but we um, focused on energy storage technology in the business class. And the final project there sort of turned into a business plan competition and the Clean Energy Prize, and that went well. And then we sort of were made aware of the DOE ARPA-E had begun funding uh, proposals, especially for clean tech applications. And the first funding opportunity announcement came out for an energy storage technology around that time. So we converted everything that we had done into a government funding proposal. And that's kind of the, the mechanics of how that got started. But, you know, I had been looking for ways to apply everything that I had been doing, both as an undergrad and a graduate student at MIT. And I had focused, you know, a lot of my time on applications of electronics and hardware technology for um, different applications. And my PhD thesis was really almost like a, a cross-section of different applications of power electronic systems and analog sensing and instrumentation systems for clean energy applications. And so, you know, this kind of came together and we won the grant uh, with the DOE. It was a sizable award. It was five and a half million dollars. That got the company started. And 
you know, I kind of started with the company with sort of the application mindset with, you know, the electrical engineering background. My co-founder brought sort of the material science background. And what's interesting about that story, too, is that I was still finishing my Ph.D. for the first two years of the company's operation. So once we got started, you know, in 2009, I was part time. And that was kind of interesting because it set up a, a dynamic where once I was full time at the company, I was sort of director level pretty frontline, hands-on hardware product development. And my co-founder was a CEO. And so that, you know, kind of set us up for an interesting trajectory going forward. But, you know, the narrative arc of the company has always been to get finally into clean tech applications. In 2009, although there was a lot of talk about those things, there really weren't real markets that existed at the time. And we also knew that as a small company, we couldn't sort of immediately penetrate high volume markets like automotive and, and grid. So we ended up starting in an alpha market and progressing through different all sort of parallel markets or tangential markets to finally get to clean tech applications where we are today. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to the to the technical aspects in a second. I just want to ask you about the actual timing of kind of co-founding the company. You said something interesting. You wanted to step out of your comfort zone and it was 2009 and we're just emerging from the Great Recession. So as you were talking, I'm thinking, you know, for you, the timing just was what it was. It wasn't a there, there were no really macroeconomic factors to consider, were there? You know, it's a really good question because it makes me think, you know, I think at the time there was really a lot of both, I would say, sort of universally, but also especially at MIT, where the focus is on applying engineering to very practical problems. You know, it's technically advanced in every way, but at the end of the day, the values, so to speak, in that community are about making an impact by deploying technology in a practical way. And um, especially coming out of the recession, I would say that there is maybe a heightened focus on how can we sort of um, you know, rebuild, so to speak, but how can we really be practical about moving forward at MIT, uh, about starting companies, about addressing climate change and clean technology applications? And, you know, I think that stepping out of my comfort zone and taking that business class was my way of sort of figuring that out. I like to mention this sometimes, like I was also inspired, I like everybody, we we read books and they sort of inspire us and in some ways change our lives. And at the time I had read this book, called Mountains Beyond Mountains. I don't know if you've read it or heard of it, but it's about Paul Farmer, who was a Harvard um, medical school professor and a medical doctor. And he started um, in a, sort of from a very entrepreneurial mindset, just sort of seeing a problem and summing up with a solution. He developed you know, medical care systems for underprivileged communities starting in Haiti. And he just built that up from the ground. And it became this very sort of globally impactful network of health providers for underserved communities. And that story really inspired me. And, it, you know, at the time, I kind of wanted to be, quote unquote, like the Paul Farmer of energy storage or the Paul Farmer of clean energy app technology. And that was also something that kind of shook me loose a little bit. Absolutely. So let's start with some basics. For those of us who are less knowledgeable about energy storage, can you explain what technology you developed and how it innovated battery power? Yeah, sure. So we started in um, what I consider to be, a, you know, sort of a niche energy storage technology. And this is called a super cap or an ultra capacitor. This was the um, topic or the subject of the ori original DOE grant award that we won. 
And that technology is actually not a battery. It's all electrostatic, which means that you're not storing energy in a chemical reaction, but you're storing it in electric fields. It's a pretty unique type of capacitor. It has very, very high surface area on, on its electrodes, and it's because the electrodes are nanostructured. And it's a relatively low voltage device, but it holds a lot of energy compared to sort of conventional capacitors. It's also rechargeable, and it's almost infinitely rechargeable. So it has some distinctions from sort of what you consider to be a, a typical chemical battery or lithium battery. Over the years, we won a number of different sort of follow-on government funding awards and commercial contracts to develop some of that technology into different applications. In particular, our alpha market was sort of the opposite of clean tech, kind of ironically. We identified oil and gas drilling as our alpha market because it was sort of a low volume, high price point market. And we were the only ones to be able to re-engineer these super cap devices into harsh environments like that application required. These were 150 degrees C, um, very high shock and vibration, subterranean environments. And we today are still the only ones, I believe, who have high temperature ultra capacitors and also more generally high temperature rechargeable energy storage. But that was our first product line and we commercialized it successfully in oil and gas drilling. I like to say that we fully culminated that product line, meaning that we demonstrated manufacturing. We won design design ins to um, different applications. We uh, closed a strategic investment and then successfully licensed that to a major manufacturer in oil and gas. And over the years, we've developed what we consider to be a product development process that we iterate through and sort of identify product concepts and, and commercialize them. Those ultra caps were really the first um, sort of instance of that. And we've repeated those successes over, over time. But through all of the uh, commercialization efforts, you know, other government awards and other commercial contracts, we developed a pretty wide array of expertise in energy storage technology, especially for those kinds of supercaps, and in particular, the electrolytes and electrodes inside of the supercaps. And then, you know, fast forwards sort of to 2017 or 2018, when the electric vehicle renaissance was just beginning, we found an opportunity to transfer a lot of the, some of the sort of core innovations from those supercapacitor product development efforts into lithium ion batteries um, at a time when it really mattered. And I can get into the technical details of that, but really the, the sort of core innovation had been that we eliminated one of the most limiting materials inside of the energy storage devices. And this applied both to supercaps and lithium ion batteries. And that, that material that we got rid of, it's called a binder material. It's a high molecular weight material that serves to sort of mechanically stabilize the electrodes. It holds the active material together and it also holds it onto the foil backing that the electrodes are um, coated onto. Um, and when you eliminate that, you have benefits all over the battery. Um, including performance, cost, and sustainability. You know, as soon as you said infinitely rechargeable, I instantly thought to anybody who's had a, a and that that end of life iPhone that needs to be plugged in every ten minutes or so, and thought, you know, there there could be real environmental impact here in terms of, or, or I, I guess the question should be, does this technology help you know mitigate the environmental impact of having to dispose of spent batteries and things like that. So what are some of the benefits, you know, to this technology in terms of reducing, you know, impact on the environment? Yeah, for sure. So, and just to be clear, so the, uh, the super cap technology that we developed, that, that is a technology that's fundamentally rechargeable many, many times, millions of times in some cases. When we transfer the core innovations to lithium ion batteries, that's not really one of the features that you bring over, although we do impact re rechargeability. Um, and we also impact sustainability, and I'll explain how that works. Um, so there are a few different ways that we impact 
sustainability and total product lifecycle for lithium-ion batteries. For one thing, eliminating this binder material, it actually happens to eliminate the need for a particular solvent that's used in the battery manufacturing process. And that solvent's both toxic and it's also very difficult to dry. Because it's difficult to dry, it requires a lot of energy um, to dry that, to remove that solvent, dry it or evaporate it in the battery manufacturing process, especially for the coating process for one of the two electrodes inside of the battery, that's a cathode. And when we eliminate that solvent, we um, we actually we reduce that drying energy consumption by about 75%. At a battery manufacturing plant level, that reduces the total manufacturing energy consumption by about 25%. Just to give you sort of a number on that, that's about a, a half a million metric tons of CO2 emissions reductions per year per battery gigafactory. The other way, one another way, or one other way that we sort of impact sustainability is sort of on the safety side. So that solvent that we eliminate as a result of being able to eliminate the binder, that solvent is toxic. It's recognized by the U.S. EPA as a uh, unreasonable risk to workers, and it's also regulated in the EU for its toxicity. And we eliminate that solvent. So we make the battery manufacturing process safer for the workers. And then finally, you know, we sort of directly impact sustainability just from a technology standpoint in those ways, but also we impact performance quite substantially by being able to sort of relax the design constraints on the battery as a system when we remove that binder from, from the electrode. And because we improve performance, we enable alternate chemistries. And so, you know, today there's a very popular lithium-ion battery chemistry which is called NMC, or the N stands for nickel and the C stands for cobalt. Mm -hmm. And those uh, raw materials have ethical and supply chain implications um, that are detrimental to, you know, national security and also um, ethical considerations for the the workers who are sourcing those materials. Um, And there are alternate chemistries. In in particular, there's one called LFP, which stands for lithium iron phosphate. But the key drawback of that uh, chemistry, although it has um, a lot of supply chain benefits, uh, it suffers a bit in performance. And when we apply our technology, we improve performance. And so we make that alternate chemistry more suitable or sufficient for electric vehicle applications. So in that way, we also have sustainability and ethical benefits. By the way, I should mention that the name of our lithium-ion battery technology is Neocarbonics, um, and you can read about it on our website. Got it. Definitely will do. Interesting that you said the manufacturing process is safer for the workers that are performing that. You know, being politically correct, does that open up, you know, more areas where where this manufacturing can take place in any way? You know, from a thinking of the, the political, um, you know, in the countries, there's there's no secret. Some countries are more environmentally friendly than others. And, you know, does, does that give you any sense of freedom in terms of where this work can be performed? What I would say there is there is a focus on worker safety and sort of as battery manufacturing is scaled up glo- globally, especially in the European Union and also in the United States. And the way I like to think about it is that the industry has sort of identified what I consider to be a proof of concept of an electric vehicle and a battery technology that, you know, it sort of meets the requirements of, you know, range and performance, rechargeability and um cost. But very quickly, the industry is turning toward other sort of issues that are very important, like ethics and safety in the manufacturing process, sustainability or CO2 footprint, or more generally greenhouse gas emissions footprint in the manufacturing process or the total life cycle of the 
battery in an electric vehicle. And these are all very important considerations in the transition to electric vehicles. As the industry focuses on those things and we start to look at really manufacturing at volume these batteries in the U.S. and the European Union, we really can't ignore some of these issues in the battery manufacturing process, like the use of that particular solvent. That particular solvent, by the way, it's called NMP. Um, it's the standard solvent that's used to dissolve the sort of battery active materials and the binder materials into what they call a slurry or a paste. And that paste is then coated onto um, current collector, or a foil, a metallic foil. When you use neocarbonics technology, on the other hand, you don't need NMP and you can use water or alcohol-based uh, solvents instead. Um, so that's a major benefit for, for the manufacturing process. So, you know, you mentioned vehicles, you know, electric vehicles were nowhere near as prevalent as they are today when you co-founded Nanoramic Labs in 2009, you know, and now a, a recent global survey says that, you know, more than 50% of global car buyers want an electric vehicle. California's passing rules to eventually ban the sale of gas-powered cars. So it seems like the other half, at least in some mar markets, are going to have no choice but to go electric. How will neocarbonics electrode technology transform energy storage for electric vehicles? I mentioned there's sort of three buckets, right? Cost, performance, and sustainability. And I think we talked mm -hmm. about sustainability on the performance side. So one of the things that, that we see pretty immediately is that and this was, by the way, this was sort of the initial result that we expected from the, the development of neocarbonics. So the core innovation had been, you know, elimination of what we call PVDF binder from the electrode. And that PVDF binder is, uh, it's basically a plastic that, like I said, it holds the active materials together and holds them to the foil. When you eliminate that and then replace it with neocarbonics technology, um, neocarbonics is at, at its core, it's really a, a nanocarbon mesh. And that nanocarbon mesh is um, both electrically and thermally conductive, and it also acts in place of the mechanical binder that it replaces. When you replace uh, PVDF with that nanocarbon mesh, you uh, expect to see dramatic improvement in electrical conductivity. And that was the initial result that kind of got us excited. We saw that immediately. We initially implemented this on LCO cathodes. This is sort of a industry-wide sort of chemistry and standard bearer and lithium ion battery technology. We saw that improvement immediately, um, but, and then we worked on it on sort of transferring that to more popular chemistries. As we studied the, the technology, we learned more and more about it. Um, we learned about the sustainability benefits and eliminating PVDF and NMP as a solvent in the manufacturing process. But one of the things that we learned about from a performance standpoint is that you can make very thick active layers, especially on the cathode. And this matters because it means that you can sort of pack more energy capacity into your battery. This is a problem for this sort of incumbent technology because you, you know, when you have this plastic and the um, active layer, you run into challenges when you make thick active layers in terms of electrical conductivity. You also run into challenges in just the, the practicalities of the manufacturing process with that. Um, but we find that we're very resilient to all those things. And in fact, we we don't trade off the electrical conductivity nearly as much when we make act, thick active layers. The first sort of benefit is that we improve we improve sort of power performance, so the rate at which you can get energy in and out. That second benefit that I described is really about the the energy density, and for the electric vehicle, that really means um, the range. Power performance being sort of acceleration or recharge, you know, rechargeability. Energy density really being sort of electric vehicle range. And then on the cost bucket, it turns out that eliminating those solvents or that sort of incumbent solvent from the manufacturing process is pretty important for cost. And also improving the um, energy density is very important for cost. 
cost. When you reduce the energy consumption in the manufacturing process, uh, you reduce the cost substantially in the manufacturing process as well. Um, And when you increase the amount of active material that you're processing per unit time, you also reduce the cost of the battery. And so what we see is that we see for, you know, fixed chemistry, we see anywhere from 12 to 30% cost savings at on a per unit energy basis, which is very, very, very significant. And it bodes very well for um, for EV adoption. At the vehicle level, that translates to about $1,000 per vehicle in savings for the manufacturer, which um, is not grossed up. So for the, the customer, you would expect to see more than $1,000 just by savings, just by switching uh, from sort of incumbent battery technology to, to New York Harmonics. So it sounds like there's a whole, the customer's benefiting from the whole, um, I don't know, does, does Moore's law apply here or is that just limited to semiconductors? <laughs> yeah, well, so that's interesting. So the way that um, New York Carbonics impacts cost is sort of, it will persist sort of regardless of advances in uh, material costs or uh, even processing to a large extent. And what I mean by that is we're reducing the costs really on a percentage basis, not on an absolute dollar basis. And so we expect those cost benefits to sort of persist going forward. Excellent. So I'm thinking, you know, I had electric vehicles on my mind, but um, are there some other new use cases that highlight the need for for the technologies you're developing, something that we might not have thought of if you hadn't pointed it out? You know, I would say across our product portfolio, there are. And, um, and also within lithium ion batteries, there are. Now, there are popular applications that you read about in the news. And, and for sure, you, you know, you see a lot of news about electric vehicles. I think within electric vehicles, we are um, identifying new applications for alternate chemistries, even within electric vehicles. Outside of electric vehicles, I would say that we're also able to improve power performance and you can open up new applications for relatively standard lithium ion battery chemistries based on that. For instance, um, vertical takeoff and landing is becoming an application for a number of different kind of use cases, but you can imagine drones being the most obvious, but kind of surprisingly, you're also seeing um, electrified aircraft becoming a real commercial viable sort of application. And there are very well-funded companies working on this and, you know, our technology could apply there. We we aren't actively working on, on that today. And then we also have a lot of interest from a number of different markets and customers across things like consumer electronics, um, you know, high performance systems and things like that. But, you know, the the basic idea is that in some of those applications, what you're really focused on is reducing cost. And then some of them you're really focused on improving, improving performance. And what I would say, too, is neocarbonics is it's a technology that doesn't sort of just move you along the cost performance frontier. It actually expands that cost performance frontier. So we have that competitive advantage over the incumbent approaches. Yeah, no, that's a, a really cool aspect I hadn't considered. I mean, you're reducing cost, improving performance. I, I know once you start talking about airborne vehicles, you know, weight becomes a factor, but you can kind of overcome some weight issues with improved performance, I'd imagine, right? Is, is there any weight difference between, you know, the old tech and, and your new next generation stuff? Yeah, I mean, so the way you can think about that is um, either power or energy density. And so in gravimetric energy or power density. So we improve both um, generally both power and energy gravimetric density. Mm -hmm. And so is very important for airborne applications. And, you know, where you see power density being the most important is where you have a lot of requirements on especially the, the lift off the vertical takeoff and lift operation. And then where you see energy density be, becoming very important 
is, is, you know, in the range of that, of that aircraft. From manufacturing costs to research and development, I imagine that innovating energy storage is not without challenges. I was curious to know about any roadblocks John faced in his journey, making neocarbonics electrode technology into an everyday reality and how he has tackled them. So reduce cost, improve performance, increase sustainability, a lot of positive things here. So I got to ask the question, you know, what are some of the main challenges that you've confronted on your, on your journey since 2009 and, and how have you tackled them? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot, I mean, there are, there are challenges, <laughs> there are challenges and like, you know, for any company starting up, um, team, you know, new technology, there are always lots of challenges. We view the way that we overcome challenges as sort of a badge of honor. You know, you, you want to see that both in a product and a team that the product and team are resilient and robust, definitely have overcome hurdles and challenges. The earliest and most notable challenge for us was that, like I said, our alpha market was not electric vehicles, but it was really the opposite market, oil and gas drilling. And we had become successful in that application in about 2014 and 2015. And then in sort of late 2015, that market, if you remember, collapsed. Oil went from $120 a barrel to about $25 a barrel. Mm -hmm in just a couple of months. And so when that happens in oil and gas, you don't sort of lose 10 or 20% of your sales. Your, your customers actually go bankrupt and, and they disappear. And um, as a small company in Boston at the time, you know, we, had, we were already spread pretty thin. So that caused us to really have to um, work hard to overcome some problems. We ended up pivoting the focus of the company from what had become very sophisticated electronics and power system. We pivoted from that to more of a focus on just the energy storage technology itself. And then about a year after we focused down on energy storage, we also sort of realized that it was really the advanced materials inside of the energy storage that were enabling them. And when we considered ourselves an advanced materials company, it really broadened our market, market opportunities. We have a pretty robust internal product development process that validates and qualifies technology. And then, then also externally with our customers, we've been able to develop and release and then ship out, you know, produce and ship out samples to virtually all vehicle OEMs and, and a number of tier one battery suppliers in a relatively short period of time. And we've received very good feedback and moved to more advanced commercial engagements with a number of those. So I think that overall, we're moving pretty quickly. I think with any new technology like this, challenges typically center around things like acquiring the right capital at the right time to take the next step, whether it be scaling up or just growing the team or adding capabilities. Right. You know, you describe Nanoramic Laboratories as, as a lithium battery company. I was more focused on the technology than like, no, right, they're, they're, they're a lithium battery company. And I know that, you know, lithium is, is there's, it has to be mined, right? And it comes from places like, you know, Australia, Argentina, China, you know, and a few other places around the world, you know, as a lithium battery company and with supply chain being such a buzzword in the last 12 to 18 months, like, you know, how affected are you by that about, you know, the natural resources aspect of it? Yeah. So what I would say is we're, we're sort of buffered from the direct sort of supply chain fluctuations, except for in our cost modeling efforts. Um, but again, our cost model benefits are really ratio metric. So even if the supply, if the raw material costs are sort of up this quarter, the percentage reduction in overall battery costs that we present is still relatively fixed. Um, but, you know, um, our business model is really designed for rapid commercialization, both the business model and the technology itself. And what I mean by that is 
we've adopted and learned over the years that we really want to focus on what we consider to be a capital light business model. And what this means is focus our attention on our skill sets and product development and not so much and also sort of scaling up to full uh, high volume manufacturing at the same time. And in that doing that, we can rapidly develop new products. We have to be good enough at manufacturing them. We usually consider that sort of the pilot scale. We have to sort of know about manufacturing, know how it's done and know who to partner with. But we don't want to necessarily scale all the way up ourselves. And instead, we look for those kinds of partnerships. So either that could come in the form of outsourcing or licensing. And so, you know, what we're focused on is really sort of technology development, proving the technology, adapting it across chemistries, showing that to customers, customizing it for them, manufacturing that up to a certain point. But we aren't in the process of, you know, manufacturing 10 gigawatt hours per year. Mm -hmm. And so when lithium prices fluctuate and things like that, it it doesn't necessarily impact us very directly, just more in concept and sort of long term impact, you know, our our partners um, cost models. You know, in, in talking today, there's been, you know, you said it a couple of different ways, but, you know, the impression that I've, that I've got is that we're going to focus on what we do and we're not going to worry so much about these external factors that we might not have so much so much control over. So it's kind of a theme that I'm, that I'm seeing develop here. I think it's a really good one. So I'm going to say, what's the biggest lesson you've learned over the course of your journey and kind of developing these energy storage solutions? And what advice would you give to business leaders looking to find new ways to do things in this, what we're trying to be a more sustainable world? Yeah. So, and it's a great question. And, um, you know, first of all, what I would say too, is just to kind of address, um, a nuance there is that, you know, we, yes, we want to focus on what we're good at and we want to understand what our business model is and how to, um, sort of mitigate risks that we see in other business models. But we also want to listen to the market in the sense that we want to sort of take feedback directly on our product performance costs or other issues and build that into how we develop the products going forward. In fact, that's inherent to, our own internal product development process and the reason that we focus so much on getting actual hardware samples into our customers' hands. But you did sort of touch on this and, you know, I would say like sort of early in the company, even before we founded the company, we kind of looked around at the landscape of um, tough tech or hardware technology startup companies and kind of saw what I would consider to be cautionary tales and sort of developing you know, something in the lab or some specific material innovation and then immediately trying to scale that up. And, you know, we saw a lot of those kinds of business model approaches fail at the time and instead took a different approach over time, which developed into sort of a mature concept today. And this is what I called, you know, a minute ago, the capital light business model, Mm -hmm. where we really focused down on product development and, and commercialization. That certainly is a lesson that I think we've learned over time is that, you know, real high volume manufacturing is a very different skill set from engineering and product development and releasing sort of pilot scale manufacturing. The other thing that I think is just pervasive in these kinds of business to business customer sales and hardware technology product development scenarios is is that you, you've got to be very, very persistent, almost have like undying willpower to, to sort of overcome problems and, and hurdles. And in fact, one thing that I like to say internally quite a bit is that it's really the failures and problems that you overcome that that's where you add value, mm-hmm. either as a company or, or a team. In fact, that's where your most competitive patent claims will come from, mm-hmm. are in the sort of problems that you overcome and the innovations that you make to overcome difficulties. And so, you know, I think being persistent is is really the number one lesson that I think I've learned over the past decade plus. 
You know, there's the, the great uh, Jason Bateman line in the movie, Up in the Air. It's, it's not a problem unless you have a solution. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I always like that one because it's like, nah, it's just it's just an inconvenience. It's only a problem if there's a solution to it. So uh, yeah. you seem to have that, that same frame of thought. So it's shameless plug time. I want to give you a chance to tell um, our listeners, where can they learn more about you and your company? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a great website, nanoramic.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. You can connect with me. I'm happy to chat. And we are very active in customer engagement, especially for lithium-ion batteries. We also have other products that you, you can learn about there as well. And we're very happy to talk and engage on you know new projects to demonstrate our technology and work closely together. John Cooley, Chief of Products at Nanoramic Laboratories. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Nanoramic Laboratories is addressing some of the world's most crucial problems related to energy storage. Their neocarbonics electrode technology offers greater power and better lifetime performance in extreme environments, all while reducing costs and carbon footprints. Look for this technology across industries, from electric vehicles to consumer electronics, power tools, grid storage, and more. The future is looking that much brighter thanks to innovators like John and the heroic efforts of companies like Nanoramic Laboratories. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Every two weeks, we meet with the unsung heroes who are radically changing the way we live and work in order to tackle the major challenges facing transformational businesses. So tune in to our next episode in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like button and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Brian Brusis, Christina Clark, and Tobin Dalrymple, with production assistance from Amanda Sheffer-Cavanaugh and Ryan Wetter.